The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Setting things right. What a great definition for justice. We think about justice and we think about Micah 6, 6-8. What we need to see is the comprehensive nature of justice. Uh, to do that, I want to compare it to something Rachel and I are going through right now. We, we're adding on to our house, and um, we have workers in our house, and a lot of workers, and it's chaos. But those that are coming into our house are carrying out our desires. They're carrying out our will. Um, we have the services of an architect who has designed the addition, if you will. And we are picking out the precise paint colors and um, we are showing where the electrical outlets go and where the TV will go and where the lights will go and what kind of lights we have. You see, as homeowners, we have that authority to tell the workers in our home exactly how and what the work to be done is. But we're not only concerned with the work getting done, we're concerned about how the work is done. In other words, we're concerned about the workers themselves. Um, as we are around these workers, uh, we're concerned that no one is getting left behind, that no one is getting dropped and not paid for a day's work. We're concerned that the boss is not using his authority in a negative way in the lives of those that are working. And it's interesting how when we are present in the house, I can tell that the boss and the workers are are taking their cues from us. And how they work and the, the way they relate to one another is impacted by our presence. And as we think about that, we need to understand that creation, this world, is God's house. He has a design. He has an idea. He has an end product in mind. And he's concerned about not only the work getting done. He he didn't just tell us um, rule and subdue. And he didn't just, but he, he didn't just say multiply images of mine, but he also said love one another as you do it. <laughs> be, be concerned about each other while you do the work. Um, it, it's an issue of listening to me, God our Father, and if you stop listening to me and you begin to do things according to you, then that is called sin and wickedness. And the very fall of man was there because man rebelled against God's authority to tell them what to do, what is right and wrong. And yet it's interesting that God didn't give up on his creation, but he said from the beginning in Genesis 3 that he was going to send one that was going to set everything right. And yet he calls out a people and he calls out a nation and he gives them his will and his design, his law again and He tells them that they are to walk humbly with one another, that they are to love each other, that they are to raise families, and they are to do work in a way that reflects His glory and His character. And yet they rebel. And so what did God do? He sends His Son, 
the Savior King to come to set everything right that He might create a new people, that He might literally give us new hearts and give us new minds. But for what reason? That He might save us so that we might be a people that are about His mission of setting things right in His world. And if you understand that story, if you understand the reality that a Savior King came to live and to die and to rise in order to give us salvation, to employ us into our created purpose, namely living in God's world, doing life and work in line with His mission and glory, it changes things. And it's interesting, as we look at John chapter 3, which is the passage that we use to launch this series, that Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again to what? See the kingdom of God. And so we have to be born again to see the kingdom. Why? Because the very essence and nature of wickedness, the very essence and nature of, of sin, is to be about my kingdom and not God's kingdom. It's to employ those around me in service to me and my happiness. It's not just me um, committing individual, isolated acts of sin and rebellion. But it's my life moving in a direction in which I believe that everybody around me, including God, is to get in line and bless me. But when you have this kingdom perspective, when you understand that, that you have been saved by grace through faith in order that you might live a life of grace, of loving God and loving neighbor, then life changes. And that's what we need to see here because with that in mind, we need to understand that at the very heart of God is a heart of justice. God is not just about individual salvation. But God is about redeeming a people for himself. Israel in the Old Testament, what's it called in the New Testament? The church. He is building a church which is his body, his manifestation and presence in this world that is a community that is to, to invite the world because it is an inviting community because it loves God and loves neighbor. It is a community of justice. And so to understand justice, and it's so hard to even preach this sermon without people's minds going in so many different directions, um, politically and socially, and because we have, have not dealt with justice biblically, it is hard for us to hear objectively sermons like this. And yet this morning I plead with you to hear me. And to rethink what justice really is. And the first thing that we need to understand is that justice is inseparable from the heart of God. You cannot understand justice without understanding that it's at the very essence of who he is and what he's concerned about in this world. I highly recommend to you the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. He is a Harvard lawyer, Harvard grad and lawyer. And um, he's committed his career to, um, to defending those on death row. And in his book, Just Mercy, um, he recounts the life, it's kind of the thread throughout the book, the life of Walter McMillan. 
an African-American man in Monroe, Monroe County, Alabama, which is around Montgomery, Alabama. And he, he um, recounts this man's life who um, had his own business, owned his own business, um, but in that small town back in the 80s started dating a white woman as an African-American man. And there was a murder committed in town. And even though uh, it was a murder of a white woman, and even though he had an alibi, he was at a, a family gathering, there were numerous people that could say he, was, he could not be the one that committed the murder. He was arrested, he was tried, and he was charged with the murder of this woman. And he spent six years on death row. And Brian Stevenson uh, fought for those six years to get him out of prison and finally did. But once he did, this man's life was ruined. Psychologically, emotionally, he had lost his business financially. He, he drowned in, in depression. And his life was never the same. And that has happened, and and really in so many ways is still happening today. And that's why I really I want to push you toward Josh Spickler's uh, seminar next Sunday morning. It's happening in so many ways. There are lives in our society that are just cast away. And society has said, it's okay. But if we go to the Bible, it's easy to get to, to understand that and look at the statistics and read, um, you know, the works of uh, the, the book, the New Jim Crow, and, and and so many other books out and and different articles and reports. But what we need to see as believers is that this is a matter that should concern the church because it's at the very heart of God. Listen again to our call to worship, Psalm 146, verses 5 through 9. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And listen, he exalts God as, as a man, as, as one who has ultimate power, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. But listen, how does the Creator, the God of heaven and earth, the one who reigns over the universe, how does He use His power? Who executes justice for the oppressed. Wow. Who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. Now, what is he talking about here? Is it wrong for everybody to go to prison? No. I mean, there are people that need to go to prison. You break the law, you should go to prison. I mean, that... That's not what we're talking about here. That is one side of justice. But what God is telling us right here is that there are people that will be sent to prison unjustly. And the God of heaven and earth is the kind of God at the very essence of who He is. He's a God who sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who were bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, He brings to ruin. He sets prisoners free. Why would God include this? God would include this throughout the Bible because it is the natural outflow of the fall of man for men who have power to abuse that power by imprisoning those without power 
in order to build their own kingdom. Let me say that again. The God of the Bible, this is not some recent phenomena. Those being marginalized in society have always been in danger of being exploited by those in power. Think about the history of Israel. Think about our history. The people of God were enslaved by the pharaohs in Egypt for 400 years. Why? Because the pharaoh had the power and Israel had no power. And the pharaoh needed a people to um, prop up his government and, and to build the wealth of his nation. And so Israel, the people of God, were those people. And what God says is, I'm a God who sets the prisoner free. At the heart of sin, we need to see, is the temptation for those with power to control those with less power to serve their own needs. Let's bring it down as, as to the most basic factor. Injustice is going on right now in our nursery. I promise you. And here's what's happening. The older children in the nursery or the bigger children in the nursery are demanding that their game be played. They're demanding that they play with this toy or that. I mean, we see it all the time in our homes. We see our older children manipulating our younger children and, and maybe just just force and power. No, that's mine. What? We gave it to him for his birthday. I don't care. It's mine. See, that's at the heart of mankind, to use power not for the good of the weak, but to exploit one's power at the expense of the weak. This is all throughout society. And so what has God done? God has made His people. He has recreated a people. He has called us out of darkness into His wonderful light to be a new community that uses our power not to make the weak's suffering worse, but to relieve the suffering of the oppressed and the marginalized. The Hebrew word that um, is used in Micah 6.8 to do justice is the word mishpat. And it means to give someone their due. This Hebrew word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. And sometimes it's used to talk about the justice that is needed for those that break the law and need to go to jail. But many other times, it is, it is a word that is being used to talk about the treatment against primarily four categories of people. The orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. One theologian uh, termed this the, uh, the quartet of the vulnerable. So we have this, these, this class of people, the, the orphan and the widow, the immigrant and the poor, who are always going to be easy to control, always going to be the object of oppression. And yet, in God's church, we are to be a society that does not put up with that, but loves our neighbor as ourselves. This is at the heart of who God is. Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, out of all the passages of the Old Testament, he chose one and a half verses out of Isaiah 61. Let, let's look at it. Luke 4, 16 through 21. When Jesus came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the, um, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He intentionally went there, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2a. And we're going to talk about 2b at the end of the sermon, but just, let's just stay where we are now. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Is that not interesting? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in the, in the minds of the Jews, in the minds of Israel, this would be what the, 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 the Savior King would do. He would come to set the captives free. And so what did he do? He rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And everybody's going, what was that about? That's the shortest sermon we've ever heard. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Are you kidding me? Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior King, who came to do what? Give us individual salvation so that our lives can be blessed and we can live any way we want to? No! The King has come for what? To bring salvation to the poor. To bring release to the captive. To create an all-new community that is not concerned only with their own children and only with their own kingdom and their own agenda, but is concerned about the glory of God being manifest in the world through loving neighbor as self. Self-sacrificing, self-effacing life of service to those around us. This is how the gospel not only would come, but would be proclaimed. That there would be a people on this earth that didn't just care about themselves. It's almost like the father sent his son to the world and, and, and the children have been left to themselves for several days. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, it's time to get back on track. It's time to be the children of the king. At the very heart of who God is, is justice. Secondly... Justice is not only inseparable from the heart of God, but justice is inseparable from righteous living. We cannot understand righteousness without understanding justice. You can't separate a righteous life from a just life. Micah is written during a time of great wealth in the northern kingdom. And yet Micah is written to pronounce judgment on the people of God. And yet, what do we read? What is the the cause of the judgment? What has got God so upset? Is it sexual sin? Is it sexual identity? Is it what is it that has God so mad? Listen to Micah two one through three. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Oh my goodness! What in the world? What, what's going on? When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it's in the power of their hand. Uh, We start getting an understanding. The wickedness that they're devising on their beds has to do with their own power. What is it? They covet fields and seize them. Really? They're successful business people. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. 
They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. I mean, isn't that capitalism? I mean, the smartest wins. The hardest worker wins. If you can get somebody else's land, if you can take somebody else's resources. I mean, and what God is saying is that no, righteousness, what righteousness looks like, um, can be seen by what wickedness looks like. The wicked lie in their beds at night and don't think about the good of their neighbor, but how to use their neighbor to prosper their own kingdom. And so we have to say to ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we are after in this life? What is it that we're pursuing in our work? What is it that we want more than anything? An article has been passed around over the last several months called Mississippi Burning. Or excuse me, Memphis Burning. Mississippi Burning is a whole different deal. Memphis Burning. And it... it um, Memphis Burning, the article, recounts the um, really the history of Boss Crump um, and his treatment of Robert Church. Robert Church in um, the late 1800s, early 1900s, was the first African-American millionaire. He's a former slave, and he became a very successful business person. And um, he was a Republican, um, old-school Republican, long-time-ago Republican, um, and Crump was um, a Democrat, and, and Crump was the mayor of Memphis for three terms, which uh, three two-year terms back then. So only six years, but he ruled Memphis for 20 or 30 years um, and, and had tremendous political power. He basically put whatever mayor he wanted um, at City Hall, I and mean, he just had that kind of power. And he also had that power across the state. But um, so when... Uh, there was a Republican in the White House. He uh, worked with Robert Church, you know, and in, in, in together in order to get his agenda across and um, to, to take his agenda through Church to the White House. But when Democrats got in the White House, he didn't need Church anymore, and there began to be a real divide. And later in life, um, one thing that Boss Crump did was um, was direct the Memphis Fire Department to burn Robert Church's mansion down, which was over here uh, around Lauderdale and Vance. And uh, the reason he did this is because there was about a 46-acre um, community of African-American middle and upper class uh, people who owned their own houses, had their own businesses and cafes, uh, just right over here west of Lauderdale um, and, 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 and Vance, and 46 acres, right basically where Foot Homes is, uh, there was a, a thriving African-American community of home ownership and businesses, and um, what Crump wanted to do, he felt threatened by that community and by uh, blacks in Memphis. And so he had um, Robert Church's uh, house burned down uh, to test um, some new equipment that the Memphis Fire Department just received. 
But what he was really doing is saying, y'all are powerless and you, you have no recourse against me. And then through the Memphis Housing Authority, he took all of the businesses, all of the homes from the African-American middle class in Memphis and bulldozed the entire 46 acres and built foot homes. Um, As I read that article, number one, I thought, I've lived in Memphis my entire life, and I never knew that history. And some of you are probably going, did Richard make that up? Just Google it, Memphis Burning. Uh, There's more. There are a couple books written that I would highly recommend. And, And what that did was more than just taking homes away from people, it was oppressing people. African Americans in this city to say, you're nothing, you have no power, there's no reason to even try to work and get ahead. Just get used to being low. As I thought about this history, the, the thing that came to me, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a historian, I'm a theologian at best. And, and as I thought about that, my, my driving thought was, where was the white church? And in my study of that period, and I haven't seen anybody address this, maybe I need to write an article on this, but what I see is that, you know, there were white believers, there were white churches, there were white Christians. What were they doing? How were they using their power? Well, think about the 20s and 30s. What was going on? Prohibition. You know where the church was using its power? To make alcohol illegal. There were the blue laws during those times. To close businesses down so that we could be righteous. We don't drink and we don't work on Sunday. They were using their power to force individual moralism and ethics so that they might feel good before God and others while all of this wickedness was going on. In addition to the word mishpat, there's the Hebrew word tzedakah, which means righteousness. And if you look at how righteousness is defined throughout the scriptures, it's not just don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. It's not just my individual, man, my performance for God. If I don't have my quiet time today, then God's going to get me. And if I don't, you know, i got to give my 10% and i got to... No, righteousness was a communal social reality in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament. Uh, but what happened, I believe, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, is that we made, because we... We're not willing to pay the cost to be um, about justice, which was the primary thrust of the whole Bible. We became concerned with individual salvation. That's why uh, revivalism and even Billy Graham and his crusades were so popular. We're not going to address all this justice issues out here. We're going to have revivals. And I I love Billy Graham and I love revivalism and, and people were converted. But people were converted to an individualistic Christian life, not converted into the kingdom and have their eyes open to the reality of what God wants to do in the world. Does that make sense? And so, 
if we look throughout the scriptures, and I think Job is, is the place that, that it's easy to, to land, because in Job, um, God looked, you know, the, the God and the devil kind of made an agreement that, yeah, Job's a pretty righteous dude, but why was he righteous? Because he didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls to do? Look at Job 29, 12 through 17. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. Here we go again. This talk about the poor and the marginalized. The fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, there's that Hebrew word tzedakah, and it clothed me, my justice, mishpat, that should be an A-T, not an O-T. It was like a, a robe and a turban. His justice was like a robe and a turban. What does that mean? It was like my clothing. It, it was so much a part of me that you couldn't... I mean, my life was a life... It was righteous because I was living a just life, taking care of the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the poor. Um, my justice was like a robe and turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. A father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. In other words, injustice is not just um, seeing a need and not taking care of it, but it's it's being ignorant of a need. He sought out uh, the cause of him who he did not know. He he looked for injustice. He initiated the the search. Where is the injustice in in in, in my community? I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. Who were the unrighteous? Those who didn't care about their neighbor. Who oppressed the fatherless. And made him drop his prey from his teeth. You see, that's, that's the nature of the wicked. Is they oppress and they take advantage of the weak and those around them. See, righteousness and justice are equated. We can go to Job 31. I thought my best defense was just to read the Bible. That's probably the best sermon. Um, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant. Interesting. Women had no rights in the Old Testament. Zero. And yet Job is righteous. He, he's saying even the people that, that work for me, even the men and the women. Unbelievable. This was unheard of in society. Um, they brought, if they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? If he rises up and sees that I'm oppressing my men servants and my, my maid servants, I have no argument that I'm righteous. I'm evil. When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Wow, do you see this huge theology? We just take this one passage and build a theology of justice. Equity. Because God made me and God made him, even though I have more money, I have more power, there's no difference in the eyes of God. Folks, that's Job 31. That's unbelievable. And did not the one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone, wow. If I've just eaten my dinner and not realize that I need to be sharing with those in need that I'm unrighteous. Wow. Anybody feel guilty yet? <laughs> and the fatherless has not eaten of it? For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as, a, as with a father. Wow, he's a mentor. He's discipling. He's, he's a father to the fatherless. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Wow, he takes care of the single moms. 
If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not um, worn with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Ouch! Sorry, that hurt me so bad I lost my place. Uh, And let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, oh, you're so good. This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Job's picture of a righteous man is not, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. It's that if I live in a society and don't care about the fatherless and the poor, if I don't care about how I'm treating those that work for me, that I am wicked. I'm not just unjust, I'm wicked. And I should be in fear of God. And then we could go to Matthew 25, and we don't have time. Matthew 25 is the end of time and judgment where God separates the sheep from the goats. And who are the goats? It's those that did not clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit those who were in prison. That's the judgment of God, because the heart of God is justice. And so lastly and very quickly... How do we do this? Justice is empowered through one's walk with God. I wish I had more time, but I don't. But here's the reality. You can do justice and not be a Christian. And when you do justice, in fact, um, and you're not a Christian, your doing of justice makes you self-righteous. Your doing of justice makes you angry and bitter and judgmental against those who aren't doing justice. When you have the knowledge that this is the heart of God and look at the church and they're not, look at those other Christians and they're not doing it, then you feel better than them. You see, the, the heart of the gospel, the, the heart of the kingdom message uh, to repent and believe in Christ, and when you do, you'll have your eyes open to the kingdom of God. It is all of grace that we see any of this as believers. We we can't see this and therefore feel superior to anybody else because it is by grace we have been saved through faith. This not of ourselves. Even the faith is a gift. It's all of grace. And so the the one who was doing the oppression can come in repenting and be humbled and humbly walk with God and love mercy. And the one who was being oppressed can come in. And not have the chip on the shoulder and not be angry and not be bitter but be forgiving. Do you see? The gospel of the kingdom is the only message that has the power to create a community of love and mercy and justice of both the oppressor and the oppressed. Unbelievable. Isn't that beautiful? And so what is the the hope of the world? And this is the the whole message of the Bible. The hope of the world is for God to redeem a people that will be His church who will love mercy. Why do we love mercy? Because we are objects of mercy. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not even one. How many meals have we had and not thought about our neighbor who had no food? How many times have we gone shopping for clothes and haven't even thought about the people that have no... I mean, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. There is no one righteous. And yet God lavishes His mercy and His grace upon the unjust. Do you see at all how I love mercy? You get that. Jesus tells the story of three people walking. I love this. Walk humbly before your God. Three people walking. Two religious, one a Samaritan pagan. The two religious people see a guy busted, broke, beat up, left for dead. Ah, Got a business meeting. Going to pass over here. Walking away. But what happens when you walk with God? You stop. You bind up the wounds. You put them on your donkey. You take them to the hotel. You pay the bill. (laughs) You come back and check on them. Isn't that beautiful? Why? Because you are the one broken, beat up, left for dead. And the Son of God came in the flesh that He might bind up your wounds, put you on His back, breathe life into your soul through His grace, through His mercy, that you might be have eyes to see the kingdom and, and see what you've been made for. God's made you smart. God's made you capable. God's made you whatever you are uniquely that you might be employed in His mission of being a source of justice to the world. And all that means is loving your neighbor as you love your own self. Isn't that beautiful? And so, do you have eyes to see, church? Not did you make a decision for Jesus back in night. Do you have eyes to see the kingdom? Have you been alive into the beauty of what He's doing in the world? Do you understand this is life and life abundant? Dear friend, come to Jesus this morning. Repent, for there is infinite mercy. And then may we walk humbly with Him and be a people in a church that does justice. And we're going to flesh out what it means to do justice more next week. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank You. We thank You that You're a God that didn't give up on us. Father, I think if I came in my house and I saw workers treating each other as I treat my wife sometimes, my children, my people that work for me, I would fire them and say, don't come back. But that's not what you've done. You said, oh, man, it's that bad. I'm going to send my son Jesus. And he's going to die. And he's going to represent. Oh, God, I thank you for such great grace. I thank you for your mercy that flows downhill. I thank you for your love that comes to the loveless. God, we don't deserve anything. We get everything. We get you. So would you move our hearts to you this morning. May we love you. May we repent of our selfishness. And may we be the people that you called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.